Good morning. If you think the students are in a daze, well, I'm sick of myself. <laughs> I can't stand myself anymore, so I'd rather be in a daze. We have been looking at the book of Revelation, and we are going to continue where we left off last, last night. This will be session 21 for the students. And we're going to look at a portion of uh, chapter 19, usually and commonly referred to as the Hallelujah Chorus, so I didn't see any reason why to change the title, <clears throat> so I'll use that same title. Uh, just to kind of get into the passage, we uh, let me give you a little background so we don't just jump right into it and you have a little bit of uh, understanding of what we've done. That's interesting. Anyway, there's supposed to be a couple of other uh, Roman numeral points there. We're actually looking at the third, what I have divided the book into three major parts. And you have all this on your outline sheet anyway. But uh, I look at uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 together. They seem to go together in terms of structure. And in that uh, structure, I see Jesus Christ, obviously, and that vision as the focus. But Jesus also among the churches, so I include chapters 2 and 3. And then the second uh, division, I see the uh, bulk of the book, chapters 4 through 18, dealing with a period of time that is not related directly to the church, in fact, one of the points that I made throughout the class is that we are actually studying Jewish eschatology. Most eschatology is Jewish. And everything else that is related in terms of the church is just related to Old Testament prophecy concerning the nation of Israel. So that large section of the book of Revelation, even though the book itself is addressed to the seven churches and, in fact, is designed for the churches, it gives us basically what God is planning and most of what God is planning is dealing with the nation of Israel. So that large bulk of the book of Revelation deals with a horrendous period of time called the Tribulation. And the Tribulation deals with Israel, not the church. We're not destined for wrath, is what uh, Paul tells us. Well, there they come up. They're supposed to come up right away. I don't know what happened. It's the way computers are, I guess. Uh, we completed that section last night just in time to get into chapter 19. And I see the rest of the book. I summarize it by calling it the consummation by Jesus Christ. And notice Jesus Christ is in every one of the divisions, obviously, and is the focus of the whole book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he is the focus. He is what the book is all about. So I like to include him in each of the divisions. And we've seen him sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes overtly, uh, orchestrating and sovereignly directing or actually involved in some of the judgments that we looked at in that period of time. So in chapter 19 through 16, uh, a subdivision, the first major subdivision, I call it the second coming. And we're going to look at a portion of that, and then we'll move on in our class. 
So in terms of, we've been using a timeline because uh, much of what we've been dealing with is actually set to a calendar. Uh, Jewish, all of Jewish history, all of Jewish uh, eschatology is on a timeline. And there's lots of little notes in the book of Revelation that set that timeline and gives us uh, insight as to when certain events take place. Not all of them we know, but uh, several of them we do. Uh, the, the church is taken out, and there may be a slight period of time, we don't know how long, before that clock starts ticking. And when the clock starts ticking, then we have the chronology of the rest of Israel's history beginning to click off. And we have it clearly defined in Old Testament passages. A clearly defined seven-year period with two halves. Read Daniel chapter 9. We've looked at that. At the end of that seven-year period, Jesus Christ returns. So that's pretty much the broad outline of the book of Revelation as well. We've looked at several major events. I want to go through these quickly. Clustered at the beginning. And uh, we see the, the clock starts ticking when the, the uh, covenant is signed that is referred to in Daniel chapter 9. An interpretive conclusion that I've come to is that I place the two prophets in the first three and a half years very close to the signing of the covenant. They seem to be the impetus for the main purpose for the tribulation is to bring and restore the nation of Israel. So they are prophets. The first fruits of their ministry seem to be the 144,000. That also is an interpretive conclusion. It's not closely tied to the chronology, but it makes sense in terms of looking at the details of the text. There's also the main function and the main uh, focus of uh, this period of time are judgments, and there are three sets of judgments. There are seal judgments, primarily chapter 6. In fact, uh, last time I was here, we went through the first few seal judgments. Uh, the main purpose is to convert not only Israel, but it's to convert the nations or unbelievers or Gentiles. The greatest revival that the world will ever see and has not yet seen will take place during this period of time. That is the only positive aspect of the seven-year tribulation. Massive conversions of uh, both Jew and Gentile, but it's a time when the Israelites are restored and prepared for their Messiah. But it's going to be the most difficult time that uh, believers have ever lived as well. Most of the believers that are converted during this period of time not only experience persecution, but most of them in a lot of the scenes that we have in that section of the book actually are martyred. It's going to be an extremely difficult period of time. It's a horrendous time, and we spent all yesterday looking at that and made us sick, right? <laughs> so there's events that are clustered at the beginning. Uh, there's also another set, seven trumpet judgments. And then we have uh, an event that is specifically tied to the middle that divides the two portions of that seven year. Daniel specifies that. Jesus speaks of it in the Olivet Discourse. This abomination that makes desolate, it seems to be 
a time when a personage we identify as Antichrist stands up at the, the peak of his power and proclaims himself. He's boldly and blasphemous claiming to be God himself. And he calls on the whole world to worship him. I think that's the abomination that makes desolate and it seems that he does it in the temple itself. Jesus tells the Jewish people, get out of town because the persecution is even going to be more severe. So the last half, uh, the, the nation flees. And in the Olivet Discourse, uh, you can coordinate that, I believe. We also have the final plagues as they're identified by John. They're also called bold judgments. And this is also an interpretive decision that I've made in terms of the sequence. Uh, the biggest problem in the book of Revelation is how do you sequence all of the events? Some of them are not clear. What are the relationships of these uh, judgments? Uh, so that's another interpretive point. It makes sense to me that we have the seal judgments as kind of an overview or a panorama of the entire seven-year period. Uh, each being sequential, but kind of encompassing the whole time frame. Trumpets seem to be a little bit delayed later. We don't know exactly when they start. And they accumulate towards the end. And then the most severe and the most uh, drastic ones are the bold judgments. So you have simultaneously all of these judgments taking place towards the end. So things begin to totally unravel. The earth is basically becoming a desolate place in preparation. Now, there's a purpose for that. God is basically cleansing the earth to prepare for a millennial kingdom that's going to have different characteristics than the age in which we live, on, live in. Uh, in our class, we haven't got there, so we'll, we'll have to talk about that some more. There's events that are clustered towards the end. Babylon falls. We defined what Babylon is. It's a world system. I'm not going to go into detail. And then the last rebellious act is a battle of Armageddon that Jesus Christ returns and ends. And the description in chapter 19 doesn't even seem like it's much of a battle. Jesus just slays them with the sword of his mouth. Wrong button. So we're looking at the second coming. And if you haven't already turned to chapter 19, we're going to look at two part or the first part. I've broken down uh, the second coming into two parts. We're going to look at just the first ten verses. First ten verses I've called the rejoicing. And the rejoicing is in heaven. Another thing, if you're studying the book of Revelation on your own, you want to make sure that you keep track where these visions that John is seeing are taking place. There's this vision after vision after vision. In fact, John tells us. He says, and I saw. Then he describes what he saw. Then he says, and I saw another vision. And usually associated with that and I saw phrase is a little note concerning I saw in heaven or I saw such and such that is on earth. You need to keep track uh, in order to best interpret and to understand what John is seeing. So he's seeing a series of visions. Uh, the second part of the second coming, oops, click too fast there, is the actual returns. We have a description of what Jesus Christ is going to look like when he returns. We won't have time to get into that this morning. That's kind of an overview of what I intend to, to cover. 
Now, the main focus of what's going on in heaven, and we've seen several heavenly scenes. Uh, many of these heavenly scenes, uh, we have particular people identified, and in every case, they are worshiping. This is a preoccupation of heaven, worshiping the one true God. So, just a kind of a reminder, we had one of the, well, the first worship descriptions in a heavenly scene in chapters 4 and 5. And what I'd like to do is just start off by drawing some of the principles there. And by the way, on your outline sheet, in italics and in bold, somewhat to the uh, left-hand side of your, your sheet, are kind of the applicational points. These are the applications that we can draw. Uh, we're going to look at what is described in terms of the, the worship. It's all worship. And we will draw from that and attempt to see principles that we can utilize today in our time frame, in our culture, that help us to better worship our Lord. Uh, we saw some of those principles brought out in chapters 4 and 5. In fact, uh, I won't go over all of them, but uh, the first thing that to note is in worshiping God, you always need to be conscious that there's only one person to worship. There's a proper person. And it is only either the Lord Jesus Christ or God the Father. We worship only the God of the Bible. And we saw uh, insight in that. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter 4, notice in verse 2. It begins, after these things, I looked. There's that little phrase. John is seeing a vision. Behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is a heavenly scene. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but that little word must, I can't, can't resist it. Everything that we have in the book of Revelation must take place. We've been stressing that. Particularly some of the horrendous things that we were looking at. You, you can't even imagine... And it's hard to imagine, and the, the commentators uh, realize how inconceivably, so, inconceivable some of these judgments are, and they have a tendency to kind of soften them by spiritualizing them. I think if you take them literally, you can't escape uh, the devastation that the earth is going to experience, and, and they're just horrendous. We won't go into that. But one thing that we're continually reminded of is these things must take place. But notice as we read on, uh, in verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on a throne. This is God himself. And as we proceed through the passage, we find out that he is the only one worthy of worship. And to kind of solidify that, look in the same context in Revelation chapter 19 and notice what it says uh, in verse, let's see, I forgot the verse, I thought I had it written down, uh, verse 9, this is John, 
19.9. And he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage. No, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship this angel. This is John, impressed with an angel. The hymn is the angel. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. In other words, God is the only worthy personage to worship. We see that in the Ten Commandments. This is consistent in the Bible, and it's emphasized in the book of Revelation. We also see in chapter 4, the worship is day and night. Day and night. And we see that uh, in a couple of places in, in Scripture, particularly 4.8. We won't even read it. But it indicates that uh, worship that is glorifying God is persistent. In other words, it's not just Sunday morning. Worship is every occasion on all situations. We should be in fellowship and being in fellowship and responding rightly to God. That's worship. That's a worshipful experience. Communicating, interacting, having relationship with God is a thing that we ought to endeavor to be conscious of and persistent in. So these are just a few principles. Now, in chapter 4, I also brought out, this is not on your outline sheet, but another concept that uh, the whole chapter 4 and 5, we see that heaven is preoccupied as well. That's almost the same concept of uh, persistence. But a definite focus, and a definite decision being made in terms of men's consciousness. So we ought to have a, a preoccupation. There are a few prerequisites. Obviously, fellowship. There are hinted at in chapter 4 as well. I didn't include that on your outline sheet. What we're going to spend most of our time on this morning, how do we do it? In other words, what are the particulars? And those of you that have uh, been coming, I, I like to alliterate, so we're using P's there as a reason. Uh, so let's take a look at some of these particulars, and I've listed on your outline sheet, at there's at least eight that we can draw out by way of application in terms of different areas or different things that we can do in terms of worshiping the one true God. Does that make sense? So let's take a look at the text and then we will move uh, into the applications after we've seen the interpretation. Beginning in verse 1. We have a change here after these things. That seems to be a structural marker that tells us we're moving into a totally new, at least division, at least that's how I have divided the book. After these things, I heard, John is the uh, author, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude, and where is the setting? In other words, where is this taking place? Where is the vision that he sees? This is heaven, so keep that in mind. And we've seen other scenes very similar. This is a heavenly scene. We've seen over and over throughout the book of Revelation, if you think of heaven as a serene, kind of calm, real quiet place, soft clouds, very... Uh, Sleepy, got the wrong impression. Over and over, we have these loud voices. Uh, we have not only loud voices of uh, personages like angels and men, uh, 
But we have thunder and we have lightning and these flashes and all of this activity. Heaven is going to be alive. It's not a sleepy place. You're not going to be able to sleep there. It's going to be too noisy in heaven. We've seen that over and over in the book of Revelation. Almost every vision that we see, there's thunders and there's lightning and there's loud voices. There's this and that. Uh, There's only one place in chapter 8 where there's silence and it's only a half an hour. (laughs) And then all of eternity, there's all this noise. So heaven is going to be an exciting place. So verse 1 kind of introduces us. There's this great multitude in heaven and they're preoccupied with worship and they begin by singing this hallelujah chorus. So they begin, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The first word there is actually a... He, uh, reference to a Hebrew word that you find in several of the Psalms. In fact, they are identified as Halal Psalms, uh, taken from the Hebrew word. Now, those of you that don't know Hebrew, there's a couple in here. This is for the benefit of the one or two that do know Hebrew. <laughs> uh, the stem, Halal, the first letters there. Remember, Hebrew runs backwards from the way that we do it. Or maybe we run backwards, right? Hebrew's probably right. Uh, halal, that's the Hebrew word where you can have the verb to praise. Or if you make it into a noun, it is praise as a noun. And then it has the ending, and it's, it's basically an imperative, or let us, or praise God. So it's the idea of praising. So halal psalms are primarily psalms of praise. And some of them were, were sung as the Israelites prefer, prepared for certain feast days. And they were celebrating, particularly Passover, they were celebrating and praising God for deliverance from one of their major enemies in the Old Testament. So these are Hallel Psalms. And basically we have a Hallel here, or it's basically literally praise and then the last part is an abbreviation of Yahweh. You know what that is, right? So it's basically, when you say hallelujah, you are saying praise Yahweh. That's the meaning of hallelujah. It occurs four times in this passage. In fact, these are the only locations where it occurs in the New Testament. You might even count a fifth one, because we have it in, uh, in Greek in verse 5. It says, give praise to our God. That's almost like the Hallel. So you might even count that one as another encouragement or exhortation or even a command to praise Yahweh. So when you say Hallelujah, you're basically saying praise Yahweh, praise God. So it begins by words of encouragement to praise Yahweh, who is the one true God of the Old Testament. So we have a little bit of a flavor from the Old Testament. In fact, consistently in the book of Revelation, totally based on the Old Testament. Uh, No quotations per se in the book of Revelation. The writer assumes that you know the Old Testament. So he just generally alludes to things kind of like this. And immediately a Jewish person seeing that, he would think of all of the Hallel Psalms. He would think of all the praise Psalms. And all the encouragement in the Old Testament to praise Yahweh. So that's how it starts off. 
So what does he praise? Let's take a look at that. First of all, he praises God's salvation, also God's glory, and God's power. Uh, let's draw some applications from that. Uh, that's basically the verse there. That's the content. What are some of the particulars? Now, these are applications. This is what was going on there. This is what this chorus, that was, this multitude, was pra- is praising God in the future. Uh, how can we apply it? Well, there's some very easy and direct applications. First of all, a major area is we want to praise God's work. In fact, if you read on, he gives us a reason. Because his judgments are true and righteous. In this context, most of the work of God includes the judgments that were brought on the earth. And ultimately, all those judgments that we looked at in chapters 4 through, well, actually 6 through 18, were from God himself. Now, he used different instruments. Sometimes he used uh, just the sin of mankind. Sometimes he used angelic instruments. Uh, Sometimes the Lord Jesus Christ seems to do uh, judgments directly. So, the work of God is a whole area that we can continually praise Him. Uh, So, as you are driving down the street, you can think of the ministry of this church, for example, and what God is doing amongst you. And just as you're driving, just praise Him for what He is doing amongst you. Or you can think in terms of friends that are maybe ministering on in another location, another city, or even overseas. And as you think of that and recognize that this is a work of God, and just offer up a thanksgiving to Him and say, Lord, I just praise You for that. And you might even offer a prayer. And that prayer, along with your thanksgiving, uh, is an act of worship. So these are some particular, some practical things that you can do uh, every day in terms of worshiping God. There's another thing that is there. When it speaks of God's glory, this is a major focus. Think in terms of who He is. The glory of God, in my understanding, seems to be kind of the accumulation or composite of who God is. In other words... uh, all of the attributes or all of the perfections or an accumulation of the perfections of God is the glory of God. Not one in specific, groups of them or all of them together. The glory of God. When Moses asked God, show me your glory, in Exodus, uh, what is it, 33, Clay? I can't remember. 33. 33 and 34. Moses asks God, show me your glory, and what does God do? If you keep reading, what God does is He reveals His loving kindness. He reveals His omnipotence. He reveals all of the, well, not all of them, but several perfections that seems to be the glory of God. So you can think in terms of, uh, what do I understand who God is? What, What are some of His attributes? What is His glory? Or what is His person? Think aspects of his prayer uh, of, of his person, and you can offer those up in prayer. Not only here, but at any point uh, in the middle of your work experience, thinking and meditating and thinking on what who God is, the essence of who God is. 
So think in terms of that. That is a particular area of worship. You can just thank him uh, for his omnipotence because we are utterly dependent upon him moment by moment, his power. Thank him for his sovereignty, for the things that he is working out in our experience to put us in the right place at the right time. We can praise him so we can be persistent in our our prayers, Uh, specifically his attributes. One of them that is noticed here is his his power. So go down a list of specific attributes and thank him for them and praise him, adore him, uh, admire who he is in terms of his attributes. The one that's listed here is his power, but you can think of his omniscience. You can think of his self-existence. You can think in terms of his... uh, uh, the ones that are just more easily re- remembered, his love, his, his mercy, his compassion. But don't forget some of those that are not so easily remembered. His uh, immutability is the one I was trying to think of there. My mind went blank. The immutability, that one's a difficult one to remember. But think in terms of God doesn't change. And because God doesn't change, we live in a stable place. God maintains it in his... Uh, immutability. If you're in the sciences, all constants are dependent on the immutability of God. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, God will not intervene. In fact, in the book of Revelation, God is going to intervene and change the natural realm. But he has decreed for a period of time since the Noahic covenant to have a stable environment. There's not going to be a flood, so he has to control all of the forces that will would threaten us in that area. So the point being, praise him for his attributes and meditate on them and think upon them, dwell on them and allow them to kind of saturate your mind. And, and if you do that, then on an ongoing basis, you can worship him in any circumstance at any at any time. Uh, notice what we have in verses two and three. Let's read on. Because his judgments are true. In fact, we are reminded throughout the book of Revelation that these judgments are according to truth. And we've been reminded over and over that uh, from our perspective, the judgments that we read about, and if you concentrate and think about them, they are horrendous. But remember, they are true. In other words, they are not out of balance. They're not uh, out of proportion. They're, They're not... Overly severe, from our perspective, they seem to be. From God's perspective, they're true. In other words, they're appropriate. They're they're right. Uh, so verse 2 emphasizes that. Not only that, they are righteous. In other words, they're according to God's standards, not according to our standards. If you're impressed by the judgments in the book of Revelation, or if you're depressed by them, uh, just think about this is God's attitude towards sin. This is God's attitude toward my sin. This is his opinion of sin in general. It is drastic. It is horrendous. It is awful. And these judgments are horrendous and awful because that is what is appropriate. They are true. And they're according to God's standard, God's righteousness. So because, in other words, they are praising. Here's the reason. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot 
And this fits right into the immediate context. We were looking at chapter 17 and 18, the context just before chapter 19. We saw all of the detail and the judgment of this great harlot. I won't go into the details on that imagery, but you can read those two chapters. And then in verse 3, well, uh, let's see, gives the reasons for the judgment. The great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So there's a payback, if you will. But it's not inappropriate. It's true. It's righteous. In fact, it's even necessary. And then verse 3, a second time they said, Hallelujah. So when heaven thinks about judgment, it has God's perspective. It doesn't have the perspective that we have as sinners down here. We recoil at it. We fear it. And in fact, our culture denies it. Our culture doesn't like the concept of judgment. Because our culture knows that it will ultimately face God's judgment. So we kind of recoil at it. And if we're not uh, biblically, biblically grounded, uh, they, they do sometimes appear, particularly in the book of Revelation, out of proportion. But they're not. Heaven rejoices over his judgments. So the first part of this passage actually focuses on the past, and then the next part of it that we'll look at in a moment will focus on the future. So he's looking back at the judgments that we already looked at. And he gives some reasons why this harlot is a persecutor of the bondservants. And she's being paid back. In fact, in another heavenly scene in chapter 6, we saw a prayer of the saints. A prayer that asked that God would avenge them. And we saw that God did exactly that. So in verse 3, a second time they said, Hallelujah. In other words, praise Yahweh. His judgments are to be praised and understood. And if you understand and stand them correctly, then you have a better perspective of God's attitude toward sin. And what God is doing, uh, our world wants evil to come to an end. Our world and you and I do as well. We want evil to come to an end. But in desiring the end of evil, what we are really hoping for is that God will uh, basically end history. And God is going to bring it ultimately to an end. We are in the middle of it. But his judgment is all about what judgment is, is separating out good from evil. And when God separates out good from evil, that's basically the end of history. Uh, no more choice, no more options, no more ability to do evil because good will be separated out. The old nature of you and I will be done away with. We will have no cap capacity to sin. The unbeliever will have no capacity to respond either or no opportunity to respond. So it's a separating out of evil. That's what ju judgment is. And it's a painful experience according to Scripture. It's drastic. It's horrendous. It's ugly. And that's what sin is all about. So that's what is going on. Heaven is praising and we can praise God that it's going to happen. These things must take place but they will take place future from our point of view. So we have a second time. They said, hallelujah. 
And again, it refers back to this harlot. And in uh, chapter 18, we saw the destruction. And there was a, a destroying of Babylon and the whole concept of Babylon and all this associated with it. And it says, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Uh, that gives us a little insight into what's going to happen to not only unbelievers, but to evil. It's going to be confined. Uh, it's going to be restricted. But uh, eternal damnation is forever. This is just one little note. We're going to see some more later on in the book of Revelation. And in fact, there have been some allusions even earlier than this. So, verses 2 and 3. We have a picture of God's purposes in dealing with evil. In terms of applying that, you can praise God for His purposes. So think in terms of what has God revealed. Think about His covenants, where we have an insight into what God is going to yet do. None of the covenants of Israel have been totally fulfilled, but we can praise God that God is going to complete all that He began and part of that are these judgments that are yet future, that we as a church will be raptured and will escape. But there are going to be people and maybe relatives, if the Lord uh, comes for us shortly, then there are people that will be going through those experiences. It should motivate us in terms of God's purpose, and our purpose now is to, one of them is to reach people for Christ. It might motive us, motivate us. And we can worship God uh, for those people that he's brought into our experience that uh, he's given us opportunity to share the gospel with. Part of his purposes. But any aspect of his purpose. Uh, we've been praising the Lord throughout the book of Revelation in the midst of all of the horrendous events that will take place because these are things that must take place. These are part of God's purpose. So just brainstorm. Think about it. And again, on any occasion, think about how I can... Envision what God is doing, maybe what God is doing. What is his purpose for this church? Praise him that he is in the process of fulfilling that. And God is equipping you as a body to fulfill part of his purposes. You can pray about those things and particularly praise God for them. So these are some of the particulars that you can uh, praise God for. Well, we not only have this first hallelujah focused on his salvation, glory, and power. But we have another one, if it comes up there. Uh, God's judgment and vengeance. We looked at that one already. We can draw some more applications. What is his will? His will is to bring an end to evil. Uh, think about what is God's will. What does he have for us as a body? For example, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, he made known to us the mystery of his will. You find out the mystery of his will in Scripture. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ, in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time, times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, Things in heaven and things upon the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. These are details concerning his will. You can look at those and think on them. How is God working it out in my life? How is he doing this in my life? 
In him also we have obtained an inheritance. So it deals his will is to grant things in the future. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Uh, meditate on uh, that whole chapter, Ephesians 1. It's going to give you insight into what God's will is. And you can draw applications from it, but in the process, worship God. Praise Him. So in verse 4, we have another group. Uh, the multitude in verse 1 is mentioned. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, what do they say? Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. I don't know that there's a proper position for prayer, but in most of these visions that we saw of, of heavenly worship, uh, the participants generally fall on their faces. And this is pretty consistent. When Jesus saw the vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, he falls down like a dead man. And I think he fell down physically, uh, literally, face to the ground. Uh, I'm not saying that this is the necessarily proper physical position, but I think it, it, it's uh, an indication of what happens to us when we encounter the living God. Uh, it's not even a willful thing. It's just what happens when you come in the presence of a holy God, knowing that you and I are sinners. Uh, Isaiah had the same experience. He fell flat on his face. Uh, the 24 elders in heaven are flat on their face. Uh, Ezekiel, when he saw God in vision, he fell flat on his face. So the proper position, at least in terms of a heart attitude, is one of being bowed down in heart, at least. That's a proper position for, for worship. And if you have a direct encounter with God, it's going to flatten you without you willing it. You're going to fall flat on your face. But we can consciously think in terms of bowing our heart, knowing that He is God, I am a sinner, and my heart can be prepared and ready to bow down before Him and to worship. This is what the 24 elders do here. They fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, alluding to that same throne that we saw in chapter 4 and also chapter 5, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. We can look at his future plan as well. That's what we've been doing in the book of Revelation. So you can think in terms of eschatology. Uh, that's the next part here. A voice. Let's read on. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God. That's just the Greek version of hallelujah. Give praise to our God, all you bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. In other words, you kids and you adults, <laughs> uh, you tall people and short people, so it includes me. <laughs> and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters. There's another note. It's a noisy place. You're not going to be able to sleep in heaven. As the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder. There's thunder again. Almost every one of these scenes we have all of this noisiness. Heaven's a noisy place. Verse 6. Hallelujah for our God, the Almighty 
reigns. Now it's put to us here as if he already has commenced to reign in anticipation of the millennial kingdom. I think the next part of the passage is anticipating the reign of the millennial kingdom. That's why I drew the application in terms in terms of a future plan. From our perspective, the millennium, in fact, the events of uh, the latter part of the book of Revelation are all in the future. Those judgments, those are all part of the future. God bringing reward to those that are faithful today, that's in the future. We can praise Him for God for what He has not yet accomplished because they are just as certain as the things that He has accomplished in the past and the things that are recorded in Scripture in terms of history. Uh, you can praise His future plan. These are just suggestions. These are just ideas. These are just things that just come out of this biblical text where we can draw application. You might even think of some others as you uh, meditate on passages like this. So, uh, utilize uh, the opportunities that we have to think upon and to worship God in virtually every circumstance. Just some suggestions here. His judgment and His vengeance. Again, His power. We already saw that in the first hallelujah there. And sovereignty. I think that's verse 6 for our, uh, the Almighty is uh, the way the Bible speaks of God's omnipotence or God's power and the reference to Him reigning. Uh, you can praise Him for those things. His power and His sovereignty. And we can draw an application from that portion. But uh, we'll do that in a moment. <clears throat> uh, verse 7. Let us rejoice. There's a call to rejoicing and be glad and give glory to Him. These are just a call to worship. The reason? What's the reason in verse 7? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It seems the last hallelujah anticipates an event that is yet in the future. So part of the passage is rejoicing over what took place in the past. The judgment uh, passed in terms of when you're in this situation. The heavenly uh, multitude looking back at God's judgment on the harlot. All of this is future from our perspective. I don't want to confuse you with getting all our time all messed up. Uh, if you are seeing these things like John was, he is somewhat projected into the future. In other words, he's seeing things that will take place in the future. So he's referring to things in Revelation 19 from that future perspective. They're looking back at what God did in terms of judging the harlot. All of it is future from our perspective. The other one is not only future from our perspective, but even future from the perspective of heaven, if there's even a consciousness of time. It speaks of an event. And by the way, this is the only event that is directly a reference to the church in these chapters. In Revelation 4 through 18, there are no mentions of the church. Chapter 3, we have chapters 2 and 3, we have seven letters to the churches. And the word ecclesia occurs over and over and over. 
In chapter, in fact, the rest of the book of Revelation, ecclesia, the word for church, does not occur except in the closing epilogue, where John again is given another encouragement to send the, basically the book of Revelation to the seven churches. The church is not mentioned. In fact, ecclesia is not in this context either, but it does refer to the bride, which is in fact the church. And this is the only reference in this portion of the book of Revelation. And it's a glorious reference. There's, this is that little bit of church eschatology that uh, does exist in, uh, in, in, the, in the Bible and in the New Testament. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. So let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Now, it's helpful to understand, remember this is, in fact, the Bible is Jewish, it's not Gentile. The Bible uses allusions, uses institutions, uses imagery that Jews would be familiar with. It's good to know your Old Testament, and you know Clay does a good job of expounding a lot out of the Old Testament. All of the imagery of the book of Revelation is taken from primarily Jewish and Old Testament settings, including the concept of a marriage. So it's helpful to be familiar what was a Jewish wedding all about. There are at least three stages, and different commentators group these things differently, but uh, there's three stages in a Jewish marriage. You might be a little bit familiar with the first stage. It's called the betrothal. Uh, the betrothal was what Joseph and Mary in the Gospels were going through. The betrothal in a Jewish marriage, two families were joined together. It wasn't just two individuals. And in some cases, the individuals didn't even know each other. Two families entered into a contract of marriage... And beginning with that contract, the two were married. Joseph and Mary were married legally. The betrothal period was designed to be a period where both prepared to spend the rest of their lives together. During the betrothal, they didn't live together. They didn't, uh, in fact, they were separate. The husband would go away and prepare a place for his bride. He would go away make a home, or maybe even build one if need be, he would prepare a home that the two would live and raise a family. The wife would prepare. She'd learn how to cook. She'd learn how to sew. She'd learn all of the things that she would need as a wife. She would learn how to raise children. All these things that a wife needs to know in order to uh, 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 raise a family and to uh, care for her husband. This was usually about a year. It varied. It wasn't strictly a year's period of time where preparation was made. That's the betrothal. In John 14, what does Jesus say? I go away to prepare a place. We are married to, the, to Jesus Christ. We have entered into a covenant with Him. We are married. We belong to Him, but we don't live together yet. We should be preparing to spend eternity with Him. And before eternity, we should be preparing to spend uh, the uh, millennial kingdom with Him. 
We should be preparing to rule and be involved in his ministry in the millennial kingdom. Uh, you prepare by exercising your spiritual gift. I know you're studying that right now. Learn what your gift is. Begin exercising it, practicing it, because you will be involved with your husband in the millennial kingdom in probably an area that God is preparing you right now. There's going to be a lot of Christians. I think this is what 1 Corinthians 3 means when it says that you will suffer loss as a result of unfaithfulness. Uh, I think a lot of Christians are going to enter into the millennium. They're saved and they'll be part of the millennium. But they have not prepared themselves. They have not prepared for what God had prepared for them. And the loss is probably the realization that, wow, I could have served the Lord in this capacity or in this area. And I didn't prepare myself for it. Uh, This is what we should be doing right now. Uh, We're in a period of betrothal. There's another stage of the Jewish wedding. Uh, I call it presentation. And I think uh, a few things are involved in that. And I think that's what we have in verses 7 and 9 in the book of Revelation. Uh, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has, has come and his bride has made herself ready. In other words, she has made herself ready. She's done the preparation. And you remember the parable in Matthew chapter 25 of the ten virgins? Uh, the presentation, they're getting ready for a procession to go to the house of the bride. The husband is taking this procession and will, uh, the wife will be, or the woman will be, I guess you could say wife, will be presented to her husband. Uh, in the Jewish setting, there was a ritual uh, cleansing ahead of time. In fact, in the presentation, there was this procession, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. There was probably a ritual cleansing, probably the imagery of the Bema. We will be cleansed. We will go through the fire, and only that that uh, is eternal will remain. This is preparation to be with Christ during the millennial kingdom. And then there's the actual presentation. Now, these are out of sequence in terms of chronology, but I think the imagery probably fits. So the presentation, the actual meeting of our husband is when we meet him in the clouds. And then they have a ceremony where they formalize the the union. And then there's a third stage, which we have... In verse 9, verse 8, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, what you are doing in service of Christ is going to make you fully clothed, fully equipped for your husband in the future. And then verse 9, and he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this celebration could uh, extend several days in the Jewish setting. I think the marriage supper is an image and a picture of celebration that we will celebrate during the Millennial Kingdom. And it will be a combination of continual celebration and service with our husband. And we will 
ultimately spend uh, eternity with him. Uh, so that's the imagery here, and this is the background that we have of this passage here. So he said to me, right, blessed. We have, a, we have some beatitudes. This is one of them in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you know Jesus Christ, you are mar- invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Or maybe another group, I'm not sure in terms of interpretation, but we at least will be the bride of Christ if you know Jesus Christ. Uh, So this is something that we anticipate. And in verse 9, and he said to me, these are true words of God. This is is certainty. This is reality. This is going to happen. It's in the future, but it's set. It's decreed. Nothing's going to get in the way of us being participants there. Does that make sense? Well, let's draw this to a conclusion. We can also praise Him for all kinds of blessings. One of the blessings is that it's certain that we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We should also praise Him, 8 and 9, for opportunities that He gives. Uh, There's some implications there that we could draw concerning opportunities. So that's the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, The main focus there is rejoicing or worship. And then that moves us to verses 11 through 16. And if you want to hear that one, you have to come this afternoon. (laughs) So let's praise God right now. In conclusion and in closing, let's worship Him. In fact, what I'd like to do is not just simply myself closed for you. I'm going to just open it up and let's spend a couple of minutes and feel free to think on His will, His work, His plan, His future plan, the blessings, His glory. And I'm going to just encourage you to just offer up thanksgiving. Maybe just a little phrase. Praise you for your almightiness. Praise you for your omniscience. Feel free, and I'll I'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we do praise you today for just not only the insight that this passage gives us in terms of worshiping you, but we also desire to be motivated and encourage us and remind us uh, on a moment-by-moment basis that uh, this should be our preoccupation. Uh, We see from many of these passages in the book of Revelation, this is the preoccupation of heaven, and we want to be preoccupied with worshiping you. Sometimes we just don't think upon uh, these things to, to, and our minds go blank in terms of how do I praise God? How do I worship Him? And now, Lord, I just pray that we, right now, just praise You for, first and foremost, who You are. Your essence, Your glory, uh, Your perfections. And Father, we just praise you for all of the silent praises that just went on. And we praise you that uh, you know our hearts and you know what we think and you know the praise that we offer and we pray that you are glorified in it. And we uh, leave here 
not this hour, but the, the next hour, and we desire that these things might uh, come to mind as we do the everyday, everyday things of life. So we just commit ourselves and thank you and just say hallelujah in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.